Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing in the season of Epiphany. Um, please forgive me for not changing the pyramid earlier. It's supposed to be green, but that's my fault because uh, I didn't delegate and I also uh, wasn't here last week. We were out at a funeral and we deeply missed uh, being here with you all. It was, uh, it was a heartbreak to not be here during the baptism of Andrew, and uh, I take it that that celebration went well and was meaningful. And one of the things that was so beautiful about it, in my opinion, is that in the season of Epiphany, we are looking at the unveiling of Jesus Christ, not only to the nation of Israel, but to the nations. And baptism is a covenant sacrament that God has given to His people for the baptism of the nations to bring them into the life of Christ, not merely to bring them into water, but to envelop them in everything that God is for them in Jesus Christ. And the season of Epiphany, therefore, was a wonderful and right time to celebrate a baptism because in Epiphany we recognize Christ's baptism. 
We celebrated at Christmas Eve the coming of the Magi, which is traditionally the beginning of and the actual epiphany, which marks the season. And then we move to Christ's baptism and the wedding that he performs his first miracle at. Here in Luke's gospel, however, we hear in the third week of Epiphany a wonderful demonstration of the first public sermon that we at least have recorded of Jesus. One of the interesting dynamics is that unlike what we expect when Christ will come and preach to his people, everything goes totally wrong. Here in this passage, Jesus, although the crowd rejects him, manifests his glory and simultaneously shows the emptiness of sinful man. Jesus' teaching and his subsequent rejection here at Nazareth shows us that without God revealing Christ to us, we would never recognize Christ, nor even see our need for him. It is not the case that those who were in Nazareth that, Nazareth that day, who merely visually looked upon Christ, recognized him as the Messiah. No, indeed, in fact, the opposite, they rejected him as the Messiah. This teaches us about our great need for God the Holy Spirit to open our eyes, not only to who we are as murderers, those who are enslaved to sin, but also as those who have a great need for and a great Christ to meet that need. It is not enough that we know that we are trapped in sin, that we are given over to being like our father, the devil, who was a murderer, but before coming to Christ, we not only need to see our sin and our woeful condition, but the remedy for that condition. The point of this story is that unless God grants entry of his word for faith, we can never be set free from that which we are enslaved to. In fact, all the more striking is that these are not the Gentiles. These are God's people. To, to that end, I want to look at six ideas from this passage, moving through the passage, covering the beginning of, or the context of it, and then moving through each element of the story. I want to look at how this deed, Christ's public preaching in Nazareth, Nazareth, was done in the power of the Holy Spirit and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. I want to look at Christ's doctrine of Scripture as he puts his own self-revelation, uh, making it dependent upon their hearing from Isaiah and believing Isaiah. I want to look at how the people rejected Jesus and why they rejected Jesus, what it was that he did that caused them to be offended. And then I want to look at how Jesus presses that offense. This destroys false visions of Jesus this is one of those passages where, in fact, the lectionary recommends we skip the second half of the story because it's just not polite enough for church. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words to God's people, and therefore we have to understand why they rejected Jesus, what it was about their sin and their spiritual blindness that caused them to hate the Messiah that was in front of them. That, that rage and wrath that they had then turns into a murderous rage, an action, a wrath that takes effect. And then finally, I want to look at the sovereignty of God's glory in Jesus' escape as he moves past them somehow. Despite the violent rejection from his countrymen, Jesus in this passage, though he did no miracle in this chapter, does display his glory in Nazareth. Why? Because he shows God's sovereignty in giving grace even to God's covenant people. God is demonstrated as sovereign 
in the dispensation of grace. Some of us who are wary of dispensationalism don't rightly use that word. God dispenses, God gives grace to His people. And in this passage, it is a picture of what happens when God doesn't give grace. Therefore, showing not only the nature of sin, but its absolute inevitability of producing death from that sin. As we saw two weeks ago in the wedding of Cana, Jesus not only displays His glory in what He does, producing wine, but we saw His glory in how He did it. The, the humility, the obedience to the Father as He doesn't immediately obey Mary's voice, but rather says, this doesn't concern me. And, and only when she presses Him and only when He recognizes God is about to do something as he follows his father day by day, only then does he act. And he doesn't take authority over the wedding. He rather submits his offering of wine to the feast master, the master of the feast. So if you remember, two weeks ago, we saw that Christ is not only glorious in what he does, producing wine, but he is glorious and beautiful in how he does it. The meekness and the humility and the beauty of how he acts and carries his heart as he obeys the Father in showing his glory. Even in this chapter, even though he doesn't do anything miraculous, he, his glory is nevertheless on display. And therefore, it's a wonderful theme for Epiphany in which we are celebrating that God was not only incarnate in Christ Jesus, but Jesus did not hide His glory, but showed it to the people. He manifested His glory, and the disciples at least, and some of the people from time to time, beheld that glory. John, in the beginning of his gospel, says, We beheld the glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That is what is being displayed in how Jesus rebukes these sinful people because he's giving them grace, even in the midst of a strong rebuke. We remember that after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He didn't go up to the wilderness of his own accord, but he was led there, and the Spirit led him to what would, we would consider to be a very perplexing thing. The Holy Spirit, we often assume, is not going to lead us into trials, but that's exactly what he does with the Messiah. He leads the, the Son into the wilderness. He leads the Messiah into the place where he will be tested. Verse 14, at the beginning of our reading, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Not only was he led into the wilderness after his baptism in the power of the Spirit, but now he returns in the power of the Spirit. And he goes to Galilee, not Nazareth, but Galilee. And a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. And he taught in all their synagogues, being glorified. By all. These are very strange words to describe a synagogue traveling teacher. Normally, the teacher, even in the synagogue, was not supposed to be glorified, and yet Luke says he was glorified. As Jesus taught, he also did miracles. We know from the other Gospels that later when the Nazarenes mentioned Capernaum, Jesus was doing great things as he was preaching. He would preach weekly in the synagogue on the Sabbath. The, the seventh day of the week, the day of rest. But he would not merely preach. He would also do works of compassion, works of power, signs and wonders. 
His teaching and preaching were not merely informational, therefore, but they themselves were an exalting in what God was doing throughout his ministry. Jesus was expounding the law, creating faith in his hearers, and glorifying God, praising God for his covenant faithfulness. Jesus' preaching and teaching were not merely recitations of historical facts from the Scriptures. No, they were the celebration of all that God had done with His covenant people and was now fulfilling in Himself. And therefore, the people were glorifying God because of His teaching. Oh, that our teaching and preaching would cause that to take place today. Jesus preached in such a way that God's people not only glorified God, but they glorified Him, which is an amazing testimony of His divinity. If He was not God, if Luke had any idea that Jesus was not divine, He would not have written that they were glorifying Him. Therefore, just as Jesus had been led into the Spirit in the wilderness and then into Galilee, so also is he led into Nazareth. This is what takes place when Jesus goes into the wilderness. Jesus conquers in the wilderness, although Adam had failed even in the garden. Jesus goes into the place of trial where the Israelites all fell away, and he survives he sustained. They grumbled. He rejoiced. They turned against God, and Jesus used God's words. Therefore, he comes up in victory, and he moves forward into Nazareth. Verse 16, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, I take it to be his custom in his public ministry, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Even as Jesus is about to reveal his identity as the Messiah in the city of Nazareth, he does this by relying upon God's written revelation. Do you remember what takes place in his temptation? In his temptation, just he announces his ministry. He starts to perform his ministry. Jesus shows both here and there his deep love for God's word. Imagine if Jesus wouldn't have done this. He just stood up in the synagogue and said, I'm the Messiah. No, he doesn't. He could have done that. But what he is doing to God's people, he's demonstrating his own trust in God's written word as a faithful preservation of God's dealings. Not only does Isaiah tell the truth about what God was doing, not only is Isaiah foretelling God's covenant purposes by prophesying beforehand about the Messiah, but they not only has Isaiah told the truth, but in Jesus using these words as we're about to read, he is saying not only was Isaiah telling the truth, but this scroll that I'm reading for, from is worth using. Now, some people might say, well, that's kind of reading in Jesus, reading in inerrancy and Protestant concerns into Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the trust in God's word that Jesus displayed cannot be dismissed. Jesus, the one who created all things, including Satan himself, used God's word, his written revelation to his people as he defeated Satan in the wilderness. Likewise, what he does here is extremely important. It's important for us to see Jesus is not using his own authority 
as God. He is demonstrating the Messiah, the God-man, as the true Israelite, the one who receives God's word and loves it and fulfills it and does it. Jesus, therefore, here is depending on Isaiah's prophecy concerning who the Messiah will be. And by doing this, he tells his hearers and us that he not only thinks Isaiah is accurate, but it's faithfully preserved into his day. What a wonderful, beautiful thing Jesus does as he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What Jesus does here in intentionally choosing this passage is he is highlighting his God-ordained and God-performed ministry. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice that this beginning of this prophecy is clearly Trinitarian in its focus. It is not the Spirit who is upon me, it's the Spirit of the Lord who is upon me. Why? Because He, the Lord, has appointed me for this ministry. Even as the Spirit has conceived Jesus Christ, bringing Him into the world, and descended upon Him in His baptism, He is present at this very moment to enable Jesus to fulfill the Father's commissioning. The Spirit of the Lord is currently upon me in order to fulfill the Father's command. But here we must ask the question, what has God actually called Jesus to do? Many people read these verses and they think, oh, well, He's merely to proclaim the gospel to the poor and to heal the lame and to recover the sight for the blind. Clearly, Jesus is going to do a mission of charity and a mission of social mercy, social love. No, in fact, actually, Jesus has a much greater, much more important ministry. Everything that he does publicly in restoring sight to those who are actually physically blind, he's doing to say that he has the right and the calling by God to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. In this passage, as we see him work in Nazareth, the point of this passage is not that Jesus is going to do miracles in Nazareth. He's trying to open blind eyes in Nazareth. Jesus' ministry is much greater than merely signs and wonders, restoring people's bodies for a certain amount of time until they inevitably die and fall under the curse of sin. No, Jesus is actually going after sin itself. His ministry, therefore, as Isaiah is teaching, is to bring about a setting free of those who are captive in the power of sin, Satan, and the flesh. The good news which comes to the poor is not the giving of earthly riches. Jesus would not say, I'm preaching you glad tidings, you poor people, because I'm going to give you money. I'm going to fix your poverty. No, Jesus is rather saying, for those who recognize their poverty of spirit, I can become your treasure. Those who are poor sinners with nothing to their credit are offered through Christ God himself. He's not preaching the gospel to the poor who are merely economically oppressed or have, through fate and circumstances, run into bankruptcy. No, Jesus Christ has much greater things on his mind. 
Those who have nothing good within them, that is within their flesh, are granted the righteousness of God. We hear this in Romans 7, 18. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells within me. Jesus is not proclaiming the gospel to the poor in pocketbook, but the poor in spirit. Christ comes to give liberty not to the prisoners. He didn't emancipate those who were trapped under civil penalty, but rather those who were enslaved to sin. We know that in Galatians 4, Paul taught this same doctrine, that Christ came and was born under the law to redeem all those who through their sin were trapped underneath the law, unable to do it. That not saying that the law is bad, rather the law is good. And in fact, Jesus was born that the righteous requirement of the law might be done in his people. Jesus is not proclaiming liberty to the captives who are in captivity because of their prison sentences. He's proclaiming captivity to those who, through their enslavement to sin, are captive to all forms of sinning. Likewise, those who confess their blindness to their sin are granted to see. At the end of John chapter 9, after Jesus has healed the man born blind, the the whole point of that story is brought forward as Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, as the Pharisees accuse him of calling them blind, and he then says, if you recognized your blindness, you would see. But because you say you can see, therefore you still are blind. That's the sort of blindness and poverty and brokenness and captivity that Jesus Christ is coming to undo. In verse 20, it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Knowing the Nazarene's blindness, Jesus then expounds this passage as it applies to his gospel ministry, a ministry not of only spiritual transformation, but miraculous wonders which accompany that transformation. These people knew the passage well. They knew that he was called the Messiah by the people in Galilee that he was ministering to. His fame at that time had been spreading, and therefore when he returned to Nazareth, that morning in the synagogue, likely the meeting would have been, I'm assuming, very cantankerous and and in in an uproar. There would have been lots of clamoring and chattering in the room as the minister of the synagogue came and began the service that morning, began the teaching that morning. Everyone upon hearing Jesus read from this passage would have been fixing their eyes upon him to see how he would interpret. In those days, just as in today in the in the Protestant churches, the way that God, uh, God's people rather, would explore His words, would, there would be a reading, and then that reading would lead to an expounding or an application of that teaching. We see this take place even before the days of Jesus in what Ezra does in the return from the exile. He appoints readers and priests to explain the sense of the passages. Protestant preaching, therefore, is not an invention. It is merely a continuation of the tradition received by Jesus Christ and perpetuated by his apostles who would go in throughout all of the Mediterranean world 
enter the synagogues, read, and begin, begin to proclaim Jesus as the Christ. Just as we have just moments ago seen Jesus' gospel preaching, I believe he would have been drawing attention to those same things. Everyone is fixing their attention upon him, and they have great anticipation of what he is about to say. I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus' opening statement was not the full extent of his teaching that morning. Luke is summarizing what he taught. In fact, Luke indicates this saying, and he began to say to them. He didn't merely say, today this, is, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, turn off his mic pack and go sit down. He began to explain everything that it implied. Everything that we have just discussed about him preaching to the poor in spirit and those who are captive to sin and those who are blind to their need for God, all of those things he would have been expounding. Likely, Jesus would have begun to explain everything that that passage meant and implied. Perhaps his teaching that morning would have developed clearly something like this, I am the person here spoken of by Isaiah. At this present time, the Spirit is upon me to announce to you God's coming near in me. Not only is the kingdom of God near, I now have come as the king of that kingdom. I will proclaim liberty to those who are trapped by sin. Now that's conjecture on my part, but I think that's what Jesus was doing. The reason why is because their eyes were fixed upon him. This was no mere factual delivery of an announcement of what God was going to do. No, this was Jesus in the flesh proclaiming that he can be for them their treasure, their freedom, their riches. And he was putting himself forward, just as we see throughout the rest of the Gospels. As Jesus is in the Feast of Booths, he says to the entire crowd offering himself, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. He would have been doing that in the synagogue that morning as he's explaining Isaiah. He would have been saying, I can be your treasure. I can be your freedom. I can be your joy. I will give you freedom and I will bring you to know your maker and you can have communion with God. Now, perhaps he would have been saying it in different phrases that might have been a little bit more congruous with what they were understanding. But the point is that Jesus was not merely saying, oh, by the way, what I've just read is actually happening right now. Don't miss it. And then ending his sermon. No, he was applying himself to the people. As he was finished, when the entire synagogue saw what he had said, they murmured about their amazement and unbelief. Luke shows this quite well in verse 22. It says, and all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? It can be somewhat confusing to read this passage and hear that they're all marveling. But they're speaking well of what he said, and their marveling does not mean that they believe that he's the Messiah in this moment, and then a few moments later are wanting to kill him. In fact, Luke has just done this two chapters before, when he contrasts those who wondered at the message that the shepherds brought, contrasting that with what Mary did. She treasured these things in her heart. All those who heard the shepherds' teaching or the shepherds' announcement, they were wondering. They were perplexed. They thought it was marvelous. 
but, but Mary treasured these words. The source of the Nazarene's amazement, the, the reason they're caught off guard by his eloquence and by the power of his preaching, is that they were familiar with Jesus Christ. This was the town that he grew up in. These people were stunned by the doctrine that he was teaching, seeing that the great calling of the Messiah was not only to remove the Romans or to do signs and wonders, but much greater to be the transformation, the whole entire regeneration and deliverance of God's people, not from the external enemies, but from all of their enemies. But at this time, Luke shows why they were amazed. They cannot recognize him as the Messiah because they say to themselves, is not this Joseph's son? In fact, we see this in another place in the Gospels where they say, we know exactly where you come from. And when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's coming from. So how can you be the Messiah? You're from Nazareth. Technically, he was born in Bethlehem, but that's beside the point. They, they are tripping up around their familiarity. And in fact, we have a saying in English, probably, I would guess, inspired by this story, that familiarity breeds contempt. That as you know someone for a period of time, you begin to know them according to the flesh, not according to what God is doing within them, not according to any sort of honor or reception. Married couples, if you've uh, had any length of time in your marriage, you will know this, that you can begin to treat them, it's a terrible thing to do, less politely than people you casually know. Because familiarity breeds contempt. It's sin working through our our unregenerate nature. The point here is that the Nazarenes were deeply offended by him, not just what he said, because they knew him according to the flesh. They knew where he came from, and they said, in fact, is not this Joseph's son? It's interesting that that's not quite correct. Now, to be fair, Joseph is his father by a sort of means of adoption. They did not know that he was conceived by God. They didn't know of his supernatural origination and conception, nor did they think he was anyone special. This can't be the Messiah. I went to high school with him. This can't be the Messiah. I worked as, at his carpenter's shop, and he always gave me the bad jobs. He must be mean. He can't be the, the Messiah can't be mean. He's from our town, and we know that when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from, and it's true in another way of speaking. They didn't know where he was from, nor did they honor him as God. Jesus, hearing their rejection of his message, and therefore their rejection of him in his person and work, gives a very stern rebuke and actually expounds his teaching to include what to the unregenerate ear sounds like a harsh, impossible word to hear. Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jesus uses this proverb to describe their offense at him. This proverb that he said, physician, heal yourself, was used in those days to say that a doctor or someone who's a healer must care for those who are of his own household. Uh, we have a very similar idiom in English, but it's a, the negation of the idea, the cobbler's son has no shoes, right? 
Why does the cobbler's son have no shoes? Well, the cobbler is always fixing shoes for paying customers. He doesn't have time to fix the shoes for his own family. It's a very similar idiom. What he's saying is physician, by quoting physician, heal yourself. And then he goes on to explain, doubtless you will say that if I did miracles in Capernaum, why do I do none here? Why have I not done miracles? Why am I not going to do any miracles? He says, you're going to bring up my power in Capernaum. So before you do, nevertheless, let me just cut you off at the chase. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Jesus has just taken their occasion for offense and put his finger in the wound to get to the heart of the issue. He expounds his teaching, drawing on Israel's covenant history to show them their sin. The Lord in this moment knows that they are deeply blinded by their sin, presuming to be righteous, presuming to be those who have the right to boastfully take pride in the covenant mercies of God. They're the Israelites. They're God's people. They have the right to receive the Messiah, and yet they do not know as they ought to know. Out of great love for them, Jesus Christ intends in this moment to provoke them to repentance. He reminds them of how God's prophets of old were sent only to the Gentiles. If you have ever read James's letter, James 5, or if you've ever come up for healing prayer, as we do in this church, you may remember that James taught us that not only did Elijah go to the Gentiles, he doesn't teach us that point, but he teaches us that Elijah was the one who began the famine. Elijah prayed and the heavens were shut. What Jesus is doing here is he's drawing attention to the fact that God is sovereign in bestowing mercy. God bestows his favor in a sovereign ways and sometimes on the most unlikely subjects. Why would God visit the widows in Sidon and yet neglect the widows of his people in Israel? We know that God is sovereign because as he taught Moses and as Paul reiterates to the Romans, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is free to choose who he grants mercy to and he's free to choose who he will have compassion upon. Just as Elijah and Elisha ministered greatest among the Gentiles, so also it will be with the gospel. The Jews, both in this chapter and later, will and are, uh, will reject the Messiah and will therefore receive the fruits of their rejection. God is going to pour His Spirit upon a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles who come together in the church. Those who are strangers to the covenant promises, as Paul tells the Ephesians, will receive the covenant promises and God's people will be left out seemingly. The point that Jesus is making is, you presume to be God's people, but you have nothing to do with Him. The, great, the idea that the, the grace of God is granted in a sovereign way, 
There is nothing that is more offensive to a carnal mind than that God is gracious and that God is sovereign in being gracious to some and not to others. There is no thought that is more offensive to the carnal mind than this. Therefore, the rulers of the synagogue that morning and all the people with them rejected Jesus as the Messiah and drove him out of their midst. Verse 28, when they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Wonderful thing for a church meeting to end in wrath. Verse 29, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I don't have enough time to cover this, but as an exercise to the reader, think about this. They have a city on a hill. What are they supposed to be? What are they rejecting? They first cast him out of the synagogue in offense in itself, but then they further push him out of their town. This is like the Gerasene demoniac or the Gadarene demoniac. After Jesus heals the man and sets him right, the entire town pushes him out of their midst. These people in the synagogue do not act like God's people. They don't act with mercy. They don't act with justice. They don't act with compassion. Rather, they act like wild beasts. They refuse Jesus the right of a trial and seek to put him to death. This is mob violence. This is nothing like the people of God are called to. In fact, putting a man to death on the Sabbath was even against their own tradition. They did not care. What Jesus had said was so offensive to their carnal minds that they were willing to throw off the pretense of religion in order to get rid of the one who was actually offensive. These people are demonic. Through their actions, the Nazarenes evidence that they do not know God at all, nor care for his opinion, but only wish to destroy his son. Later on, when Jesus tells the parable of the tenants, applying it to the Pharisees, we have to understand that the Pharisees rightly represented the rest of of the people of Israel. In fact, we have to equivocate here because it's not right to even call them God's people. As Paul later explains in his epistle to the Romans, not all who are in Israel are of Israel. That's why Jesus and John the Baptist and the apostles afterwards are able to say things to the Pharisees such as, you are of your father the devil. You are a brood of serpents, a place where snakes are multiplying, like the snake in the garden. You, you guys are on the wrong team. You're supposed to be waiting for the offspring of Eve who will bring freedom, and you are living like offspring of the serpent, the serpent's seed. It must be shown, however, here, that not only is Jesus willing to rebuke them, not only is he willing to be offensive to them, this is glorious and it is an act of his love. Jesus here is provoking them to anger in love. He wants to show to them their internal state. And there is no way that he can do that greater than showing it through the fruit of their own behavior. This is another wonderful, glorious aspect of Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, is not apathetic to the condition of God's people. He is not willing to allow them to continue their religious charade. He wants to bring reality. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He wants to bring the truth to bear among God's people. Jesus is not apathetic to the state of 
the covenant people of God, and therefore He is unwilling to let sinners remain in their sin. Just think about how offensive this sort of teaching would be in our world today. In fact, think about how offensive this notion of the real Jesus is to those who hold false views of Jesus. This sort of Jesus is not welcome in many of our churches. Nevertheless, we cannot create another Christ. This is the only Jesus there is. Jesus is willing to be offended by the Nazarenes, or or, excuse me, Jesus is willing to be rejected by the Nazarenes because he's willing to offend the Nazarenes, and he's willing to offend them because he loves them. Love is not merely affirmation of someone's existence or behavior. No, love is willingness to speak the truth even though it costs you rejection. This is how you can know if you're ready to preach the gospel and share the gospel with your friends. Are you willing to be rejected by them? Because sharing the gospel requires you to explain the state of man apart from Christ. We know that nothing good dwells in us apart from Christ. We know that we are enslaved to sin, as we saw a few weeks ago in Titus, that we were held captive to lustful passions or or worldly passions because they were our desires. That the things that destroy us, we love. It's not like we'll get rid of our dysfunction one day if we try hard enough. No, we are in love with our dysfunction. Therefore, Jesus is willing to offend the Nazarenes, and he does so to highlight their great need. They can never come to trust in the Messiah until they see that they need the Messiah. You see, they were hoping that the Messiah would come and solve all their problems, but they didn't see that their greatest problem was they themselves. The greatest problem that the Nazarenes had was that by their fruit of their deeds, they were murderers. And Jesus Christ comes to take away their murder. Finally, however, at this point in the, in the story, Jesus escapes their murderous plot, for it is not his hour to die. Not only does Jesus show his glory in being willing to, willing to offend these people, to call forth, uh, to call away their darkness by bringing light, he also does something amazingly miraculous. But passing through their, their midst, verse 30, he went away. I love how Luke actually kind of almost embodies what Jesus did in the way Luke says what happened. Luke doesn't give us a lot of details. It just kind of slips on by. And, it, and we're on to the next verse. Christ either fled this group, outpacing them, or he evaded them somehow. Perhaps they had a lock on him for a time and he wrestled himself free. Perhaps it was a little bit uncomfortable. Perhaps some people looking at it might have even called it violent. But violence is never self-defense. Maybe, I think this is more likely, perhaps more theologically fitting, he did what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. What took place in Sodom and Gomorrah as the people were trying to grab on Lot. The angels blinded the town. Perhaps Jesus caused them to be blinded. We, he does this later in Luke with the disciples. As, as he's on the road to Emmaus, he comes up to these two disciples and it says their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. I think this is what takes place in this passage. Nevertheless, however it actually happened, this is revealing Christ's glory again. 
Even though everyone in the synagogue and all the town probably joined in with them, even though all were arrayed against him, none of them could harm him. Therefore, when he actually does go to die, when he does actually go to the cross, we know that it will not be because, it will not be because the Romans and the Jews finally got a leg up on him. They didn't finally catch him, but rather, as he says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. This is, brothers and sisters, a marvelous view of the glory of Jesus Christ. He not only loves his people and is willing to be pursued by them to the point of death, but when he does go to the cross, he will go willingly, not as a, not as a victim of circumstances, not as some sort of moral tragedy or just mere example of how to put up with suffering. No, Jesus lays down his life actively. He died in your place by choice. Obeying his father, yes, but by his own authority and power. Operating in obedience to his father, he laid down his life at the right time and not a moment sooner. In summary, through Jesus' teaching at Nazareth, we see the glory of Christ as he operates in the power of the Spirit. Jesus that day taught with power, clarity, and wisdom, tying his very identity to the word of God. He revealed himself to his countrymen, offering himself to them that he might be able to heal their sin-ravaged souls. He offends those who are trapped in pride, facing their rejection and taking the brunt of their murderous rage. Like the Nazarenes, we too are often blind to who Christ is unless God opens our eyes. Before we come to Christ, we do not think that we are poor in spirit or captive to sin or blind to our condition, and yet we are actually so much worse than it sounds, especially if we are familiar with spiritual language. Imagine being blind. Imagine being captive in a cell. Imagine being so poor that you can't pay for food, but it's a poverty of your spirit. It's an existential poverty. We don't feel as we are before we come to Christ. And yet without Christ, everything is lost and we are destined to perish. No matter how many earthly blessings you are given in this life, without Christ, everything is pointless. You have no essential reason to exist. Without Christ, you not only are unable to stop sinning, you love sin. It's your highest and deepest joy. We, like they, are often filled with pride, both in our heritage and our possessions, and we have little need for Christ. And yet, in truth, by God's grace, He helps us to see that we are beggars. I forget the origin of the quote. I looked this up a few months ago. But essentially, being a Christian and sharing the gospel is one beggar who knows where to find bread telling other beggars where to find that bread. That is what we are attempting to do in the Christian walk. In the wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, in the third stanza, it shows the extent of our desperation apart from Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That is the sort of desperation that is at work in the Nazarenes who are trying to kill God who's come near to them. 
And unless you and I recognize our deep need for Christ, our existential, foundational, fundamental necessity to have the Messiah change us, we cannot come to Him. And yet, although we are now hidden in Christ, we still from time to time must recognize our blindness, which occasionally occludes our eyes from seeing Him. It is true, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, that we do see through a glass darkly. But it's not only the case that we see through a glass darkly. From Occasionally, we're too distracted to even look. What I mean by this is, even if we are new creations in Christ, we are often still blind to the reality of our youth in Christ and our weakness apart from Christ. And we see the means of God's grace, corporate worship, reading the word, prayer, communion with the other saints. We see them as light and somewhat trivial matters. We think we are rich in Christ, and yet, as he told the church in Revelation, you are poor, you're blind, you're naked. Jesus is speaking to Christians. Therefore, as we begin a new year, I am calling you and myself, give yourself to seeing the glory of Christ in the Word. Because you are a new creation, if you are a new creation, the Holy Spirit is at work in you, desiring to show you the glory of Jesus Christ. And we understand that as we see His glory, we are transformed by it, ever increasingly to be like Christ. Therefore, seeing the blindness of the carnal mind, let us thank God for opening our eyes to our need for Christ and to pursue His grace as we hear His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You that not only was He trusting in Your Word to perform its work that morning, but also He was willing to offend. He was willing to offend because He loves His people. We pray that you would open our eyes to our blindness and our wretchedness and our nakedness and our lack of anything good apart from you. Help us to see who you can create us, who you can recreate us to be in your Son. And we pray, Lord, that if we are truly in you, that you would not allow us to camp out at one level of knowledge or one level of health or one level of maturity, but that we would constantly together with all your people, be growing in grace, that we might grow up into maturity, into the head, which is Christ. We pray that you would glorify your Son in us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.